Good morning. I'd like to thank Brother Matt and Brother Warren for uh, the devotional and the children's lesson. If uh, I don't know where Brother Matt is, it's out back there. If I can suggest a title for your uh, devotional, I'm going to suggest that uh, God is not an American. He does not give us instant gratification like we are uh, quite often used to. And uh, Brother Warren, I, I mean, you made me think of a, a message that uh, I heard at Living Hope. Um, uh, brother got up, and he pretty much the whole message, he, he was asking questions, you know, what's heaven going to be like? Um, and when, when he got done, I mean, the reality is we, we actually have a very small glimpse as to what heaven's going to be like. I mean, it's what we're looking forward to. It's what eternity is going to be like for most of us. Um, but, yeah, we have a very small picture of what it's actually going to be in the process and everything we're going to be doing day to day. So I'm not going to ask you all a bunch of questions today, but I, in a little bit here I am going to have you all help me with an object lesson. I'm going to get just about everybody to participate in that. So today for our message, uh, I want to take a look at the topic of uh, conviction, and particularly personal conviction. Um, I know over the past uh, number of years here at Oasis, we've had a number of messages and um, trying to understand how we relate when we have different convictions, um, how we relate when the, uh, the group or the church has a different conviction than we have personally, or maybe they have a stronger conviction than we have personally. I also want to take a look at how we develop conviction in our own lives and uh, I want to talk a little bit about why it uh, appears like some people that we've known that maybe we could look at and think of them as very solid Christians appear to have lost their convictions. So today we're going to be looking at those questions um, and a few others. And uh, if you're a note taker today, the title for my message is Questions on Conviction. But... Uh, I think before we go any further, I'm going to ask everybody to stand up again, and we're going to pray and devote this time to God. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we pray that you uh, come amongst us this morning and bless this time. I pray, God, that you can uh, be with me, that I might be your mouthpiece and speak your word, and I pray that uh, the minds and hearts of those listening can be uh, attentive and can uh, sort through everything I say and could walk away and profit uh, from looking at your truth. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So I said I was going to have you all help me out with an object lesson this morning. So here's what I'd like you all to do. And, um, you know, in some ways, an object lesson that everyone participates in, that's going to be something that you all are going to remember a little bit more than maybe a lot of the things I say. Um, so here's what I want all of you to do. I would like everyone to take out their cell phone. Yep, take them all out. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, what I want you all to do, I want you to turn them off. And I am being clear, I, I want them off. I'm not asking you to turn them on vibrate. I'm not asking you to turn them on silent. I'd like them to be turned off. And you're welcome to look around and uh, look at your neighbors, make sure nobody's cheating. 
Okay, if you have them all off, you may now put them away. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off here by sharing something that I personally feel. I personally have conviction about cell phone use during church services. I personally feel that we should not use cell phones during our Sunday morning services or during our prayer meetings. And, you know, to be honest, I think most of us feel that way. Um, It's irreverent and it's disrespectful to the others that are there amongst us. And, you know, maybe some of you, uh, you use an app on your phone for your Bible. Um, I liked what Brother Earl said a couple of weeks ago. If, uh, if you do that, you can go ahead and get yourself a real Bible. You might not have said exactly like that. Um, now, what I just did was I just set a standard. I just enforced my personal conviction on all of you because I, I know, and I'm just going to be honest here, once or twice I've seen a few people during our Sunday morning service and our prayer meetings pull out their phone, and very obviously used it, sent a text. Um, you know, I'm not going to say it was a bunch of people. It was probably only one or two. But because I can't trust you with that, uh, with having your phones on, you know, if you have your phone in your pocket and you have it turned off, that's, hey, that's fine if you let it there. But because I know I can't trust you, I have to set a higher standard that forces you to conform to my personal conviction. So I'm going to come back to that example here later on, but I I needed to do it at the beginning here, otherwise it didn't have any effect. Um, You know, some people might uh, might look at a a standard like that um, and, you know, maybe get a little bit offended. They might feel that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, using a, a Bible on your phone. You know, they might even uh, rightly so think that, you know, uh, using a Bible on their phone, uh, there's no biblical principle teaching against it, and that these people are just being legalistic that are forcing their opinion on me, and they have no right to push their, their wrong convictions on me. Now, you know, it is true that there are right convictions and there are wrong convictions, and sorting through them is not always an easy task, because when we talk about convictions, we're often talking about uh, the application of uh, biblical principles, the practical application. But we, you know, how we live our lives, how we dress, where we spend our time, um, how we spend our money, how we raise our children. And, you know, because none of us are perfect, we all have had different experiences and influences in our lives that have shaped our personal conviction and how we interpret the scriptures. None of us are going to see eye to eye on everything. That's just the fact. But as we journey together, the Bible does give us this instruction in Philippians 2. It says, Fulfill my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. And, you know, we can only get to that place of like-mindedness by letting iron sharpen iron, by having honest discussion and searching the scriptures together, and by investing time in one another's lives. So I'd like to start uh, taking a look at some of these questions on conviction. And, you know, the most uh, appropriate one to start with is what what is conviction? Um, like I said before, the most common use of the word is when we say I have conviction against something. It's oftentimes used as a negative. Um, but uh, the word is actually quite a bit broader than that. Webster defines the word as a strong persuasion or belief. And I like to think of... Uh, 
conviction as things we are convinced are true. When we are convinced on something, we are sure about it without a doubt. You know, in the, in the legal system, when they pass a conviction on a criminal, what they are doing is they are saying we are without a doubt sure that this person is guilty and we are justified in punishing them. And when we think about a man of strong conviction, we can think of someone who is uh, steadfast about their goal, who's unable to be persuaded to change course. We think of someone who has a belief so at their core that it's part of what defines the person. You know, if we need an example of a man of conviction from the Bible, we can think of Daniel. Daniel refused to eat the king's defiled food, and he refused to stop praying to the Lord. Not even being thrown to the lions made him question his conviction, what he knew to be right. He was steadfast and unmovable in his belief, no matter what anyone did or said that could not change the absolute truth he knew. Now, when we talk about biblical conviction, we're talking about that that moral sense of right and wrong that is revealed to us by the scriptures. That conviction is based on an authority that doesn't change and cannot be questioned. But sometimes when people talk about conviction, they're just talking about uh, convictions, you know, sort of based on how they feel with no real foundation. Um, the conviction based on truth has a strong foundation and cannot be changed. And the conviction based on feelings change often to someone's mood changes. You know, all of us have varying degrees of conviction on varying subjects. And all of us have opinions on just about everything. You know, some of those opinions are quite a bit stronger than other opinions. But what that foundation of our conviction is built on is what decides what makes them strong or weak. Regardless of how we represent them to others, because the strength of the foundation of a conviction is what will determine how enduring a conviction will be, whether it's uh, a short-lived fancy or whether it's a lifelong pursuit. Now, you know, what what I don't want to do today is uh, communicate that I think good, honest, biblical conviction is completely stoic. That's that's simply not true. God created us as uh, emotional creatures, and if we thought real conviction was completely stoic, then we'd be denying how God made man. You know, when a sinner is convicted of their sin and becomes so smitten in the heart that they cry out to God for salvation, it is an emotional experience. It's an experience that is based on emotion almost as much as it's based on truth. You have that feeling of this burden being lifted off your shoulders, the easing of your conscience and the new peace with God. And, you know, I I am convinced that if that experience is as far as a new Christian goes and does not begin to build upon a solid foundation of uh, uh, the scriptures, their convictions that as soon as soon as the uh, the hardships of life come, they're they're going to fall away. They're going to be like the plant that uh, quickly sprang up. And when the sun came out, it got scorched. New Christians and, you know, even mature Christians need to be continually making sure we are developing and maintaining convictions based on truth. You know, some people can some people claim that, you know, just following that internal feeling of right and wrong is all you need to do. 
without having any conviction based on the authority of the scriptures. You know, one of the things I um, you do when you, you come in contact with one of these nominal, not I don't I don't even want to call them nominal. But, um, you know, the average American, you go ask them, what's your religion? What do you believe? Uh, they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, do you go to church? No, I don't go to church. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Oh, I'm just a good person. Well, what is that based on? I mean, they have no basis for their, uh, for their thought there. It's just, oh, well, that makes sense to me. Um, that, that's what feels good. You know, I can remember from my childhood, um, I grew up with uh, movies and TV. I remember watching a, a children's movie. And the, the premise of this movie was that uh, this, this, uh, this little toy wanted to become a real little boy. But uh, in order to do that, he had to prove that he was going to be a good boy. But he didn't know how to tell the difference between right and wrong. So he was given this, uh, this little cricket who knew how to talk. Eldon knows what I'm talking about. He's there smiling. Um, but he called this little cricket his conscience because it told him the right thing and the wrong thing at different times. And he was told to let your conscience be your guide. You know, on the surface, that might sound harmless. But honestly, it, it is a terrible worldview to instill in a child. To just let your conscience be your guide. You should let the Bible be your guide. You know, when people live that out, you end up with everyone doing what seems right in their own eyes. And, you know, let us remember that the heart of man loves darkness. You know, honestly, I've run into people that it seems almost like they have no conscience at all. They have no sense of right and wrong. You know, what would feel wrong to us would smite our conscience, might not even register to someone else. You know, if somebody here uh, stole something, I, I would hope and imagine that uh, you would feel bad about it. But to some people, they, they simply have no remorse about it. You know, many criminals today and throughout history, uh, if they got caught, their, their thoughts mostly centered around how can I get away and do it again? You know, if we want to think about how far man can go following their own sense of right and wrong outside of God, you know, we can we can start uh, before the flood. Genesis 6, 5 tells us God saw that the weakness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And, you know, we can also think about the, the Canaanites, those, uh, those people that God let their sin be, be complete, and then he sent the Israelites in, and they were supposed to wipe them out. The Canaanites worshipped uh, uh, an idol called Moloch. What they would do is they would have a, a big bronze or iron statue, bigger than a man. They would have the stomach of this uh, big idol hollowed out where they would build a fire. And they would have the, the arms of the idols outstretched forming like a ramp down into the fire. And what they would do is they would, they would sacrifice newborn babies. They would put them on the arms, and, and the baby would roll into the fire. And they thought what they were doing was a good thing. You know, just because your conscience doesn't convict you of something doesn't mean it's necessarily right. That's not the litmus test to what's right and wrong. You know, there, there can be times you're convicted about something that there's no real moral reason what you're doing is wrong. You know, as our conviction grows, it nurtures and shapes our conscience. You know, many non-Christians can also do some very good things. They can help a neighbor. They can donate to the poor. They can find forgiveness for someone who wronged them. They can love their families. But, you know, I, 
I am one that uh, I believe much closer to the concept of total depravity. I think the Bible teaches something much closer to that um, than the opposite. Because, you know, for an action to be holy, it needs to be the right action with the right motive. You know, can the non-Christian have the, the absolute right motive? You know, the Bible says in Proverbs that the plowing of the wicked is sin. So we can see that even a normal day job can be looked at as sin. You know, in Isaiah, it says all our righteousness are as filthy rags. In Timothy 1, 15 and 16, it says unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God. But in their works, they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. I would understand the Bible to teach that outside of Christ, we cannot please God nor obtain any kind of righteousness. Christians only obtain their righteousness through Christ. In Galatians 3, 9, Paul writes, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. But, you know, since we are Christians, our conscience, our consciences are a little bit different. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, how does the, the Holy Spirit factor into our, our convictions and our conscience? Before anyone becomes a Christian, regardless of what level of morality they follow or what level of morality their conscience has, it doesn't really matter because it will never be up to the standard that God's is. It is always still tainted by sin. Now, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells or infuses with our spirit. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that our conscience automatically changes so that, you know, all of a sudden every little sin we can recognize and have remorse over. But we do become more sensitive to sin. When we start having the... The Holy Spirit tug us in a direction we otherwise wouldn't go. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us instantly perfect. But he begins to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And, you know, we can fight that or we can cooperate. And oftentimes it's uh, it's a mixture of the two. There's times we fight against him. There's times we, we cooperate and submit. And, you know, I've, I've personally had plenty of times that I had this uh, I had this feeling that something I was doing needed to be questioned or something I was doing was wrong. And so I prayed about it and the Lord revealed to me a weakness I hadn't seen or some truth I hadn't uh, realized or been taught. In Timothy four, it talks about those who have departed from the faith as having their conscience seared with a hot iron. For any of us that have gotten a burn, you know, a- after that initial pain stops. You can't feel anything for a good while where you got burned. And if you burn yourself bad enough, you know, you'll never feel anything in that spot again. You know, I when I think about that, I think about the times where I've I've actually seen that work out. And, you know, maybe many of us have, too, where someone that was raised in a. a conservative setting or maybe somebody that joined up at a conservative setting um, 
and then leave and go to a liberal church or just, you know, leave the uh, leave Christianity altogether. Um, they, I have found, are much more difficult to talk to about spiritual things because they put a wall up right away when you start talking to them. If they find out you're from a, a, a plain or conservative church, they put a wall up right away. Um, I mean, everyone's a, everyone's a, an individual and um, comes at things in their own perspectives, but I, I've seen many of them do that because they, they have this sense, this feeling that they're going to be condemned or judged immediately. So they put a wall up. Um, and many of them look at can't even look at anything godly from their background and say it was good. They, they start calling good evil. You know, we, we all know people that have gone from that, that you know, that uh, conservative setting to the uh, liberal setting. And we all know people that were raised in the, um, the conservative setting that left. And we know all those, we know people that have come and joined up for a number of years, but just end up leaving again. You know, it's, it's really hard to say if those people lost their conviction or whether or not those people actually had conviction to start with. Um, I would probably say that the, the later is more true that they, they probably never had it to start with because conviction that is deep seated with a biblical foundation, you, you don't lose that overnight. That's not something you can't, ju- you can just walk away from. Now for the next question on conviction, I want to look at is uh, how is conviction developed? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna expound on this in a little bit here, and you know if you disagree with me, you know feel free to come and talk to me afterwards, and maybe I can gain some new insights. But I'm gonna say today that I think conviction is developed 100% by influence. I'm gonna say that there is no conviction that anyone in here has was natural to you. It was all developed as a result of influence. You know, we, we can process influence positively and negatively. You know, we can see a drunk in the gutter and realize drinking is a bad idea. Or we could spend our time being around some foul-mouthed co-workers and, you know, start letting our personal standard of speech slip. Or you could uh, spend time with some brothers that uh, pray a lot and you might start seeing a need for more prayer in your life. Our convictions are developed by how we process the many influences we have in our life. You know, the two most important influences in our life are the Bible and the church. And I'm going to make that order very clear. The authority of the church comes out of the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate authority. But the church helps us to interpret the Bible. And those are the two influences we need to make sure we have plenty of in our life and that are influencing our convictions. You know, there there is a saying that I'm sure uh, all of us are aware of, and that's uh, garbage in, garbage out. You get out what you put in. You know, that's the same with our, our lives and our personal convictions. We can do our best to filter out sinfulness that we come in contact with, but we need to be aware of and on guard because every experience is an influence on our lives, and they will affect us to some degree. If you spend all your time with certain people, you will begin to pick up their traits and habits. If you're around sinfulness all the time, it will slowly begin to become a norm and lose its shock factor. You'll slowly become desensitized to it. 
And, you know, there, there is a reason we hear so many warnings and messages about technology and the dangers of media. Because it does affect us. And, you know, to be quite honest, you're going to hear more and more messages about that. Because that is the single greatest issue facing the church today is how to relate to technology. You know, a couple weeks ago, Brother Matt had a message where he had said that uh, you can't be friends with everyone. And I don't remember if he quoted this verse or not, um, but I thought it was very fitting. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it says, Be not deceived. Evil association corrupts good manners. We need to be careful about what we are allowing into our lives and into our families. It does affect us. You know, don't be deceived that it doesn't. So, you know, what, what do we do then? Do we go and build a monastery on top of a mountain? Do we, uh, maybe we'll start a colony and put big walls up and then uh, not let anybody else in so we can just read our Bible and um, relate to uh, other Christians inside? Or maybe we'll do what uh, some people do. We'll just, uh, we'll stay here and we'll just associate with plain people and uh, all these worldly people will just uh, do our best to try to stay away from. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take a look at our ultimate example, Jesus, and see what, uh, see what he did and sort of the people he spent his time with. So if you all could turn with me to Luke 15. I'm going to start in verse 1 here. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doth not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over the ninety-nine just persons which needeth no repentance. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I'm going to stop there. Here we can clearly see, and there's lots of other places we can see in the Bible, where Jesus clearly spent his time with sinners. But, you know, he didn't do it to have fun or because he enjoyed it. He was around those people with a purpose. He was intentionally there teaching them about the kingdom, and he was calling them to repentance. He wasn't there just hanging out for fun. And in the same way, we want to spend our time with godly people But, you know, if you want to intentionally go out and spend time with ungodly people for the kingdom's sake, you know, praise God. Just make sure you're doing it for the kingdom's purpose. You know, if you have a friend or a group that you have questions about spending time with, about um, if they're influencing you, 
in a certain way, um, just ask yourself the question, you know, am I here? Am I spending time here? Am I doing this for God or am I doing this for me? I think that would be a very revealing question. You know, we can't reach the lost if we stay away from them. But we have to make sure we're the ones influencing them for good and not them influencing us for evil. You know, I've uh, I heard the comment by someone in our circles already. Um, why do people in charity type churches that get involved with missions end up liberal? That question obviously was asked in a general sense, but was referring to a trend that you can see among some of the charity type churches. You know, to be honest, I don't think there's a clean answer to that question. You know, it might vary from being influenced by the mission field to them wanting to relate to the people they're ministering to, to them being minded that way from beforehand. And, you know, just coming out out on the mission field when some of the restrictions are lifted. But, you know, that question alludes to a bigger problem. You know, some people might uh, refer to it as drift, but I'm going to refer to it today as the, the loss of conviction. That continual weakening of conviction through giving more and more heed to bad influence and less focus on a biblical foundation. Anything that takes us away from the Bible being the ultimate basis for our convictions will lead you to lose biblical conviction. You know, recently, in the last couple weeks here, I heard uh, the story of a conservative Mennonite man who made the comment that he's fed up with the Anabaptist churches and he would be just as happy going to a Protestant church. You know, my first question when I heard that was, doesn't he believe in non-resistance? Doesn't he believe in the two kingdoms? Doesn't he believe in modesty and the covering? Doesn't he believe in interpreting the Bible literally and on and on? When we see a person drift and appear to lose their biblical conviction, you know, that, that doesn't mean they necessarily lost personal conviction. They could have, in fact, not had that conviction from beforehand. You know, we've all heard different stories of churches that have um, needs as far as uh, discipling their youth. There are churches that just go through the motions of church life without actually educating their youth properly on the biblical foundation of the, the practices that they have. And then, you know, when, uh, when the first trials in life come along, they get blown away. It is important for us to make sure we are developing strong biblical conviction and not allowing it to be destroyed. You know, like I said earlier, God gave us two objective safeguards against us losing our conviction and making sure our convictions are not legalistic. That's the Bible and the church. Those are the only two influences we should have developing our convictions. You know, some people might even say that you only really need to read your Bible and study your Bible to develop, you know, deep and uh, right convictions. But you have to have the church around you helping you to interpret the Bible. There's a reason God tells us to have fellowship with other believers. There's a reason he tells us not to forsake the gathering together. Because he knows we all can't stand on our own. He knows we need each other's help to keep us in line, to safeguard us from falling, to encourage us along the way, 
to help us grow and develop biblical convictions. Because the fact is, we can't do it on our own. You know, I know a lot of people have tried, and I'm not going to say it never works out, but very rarely does it work out to try to be a Christian and not be part of a church. When we are developing some of these deep-seated personal convictions, it is good and appropriate to go to other proven and godly brothers and ask them for their interpretation of the Bible passages. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, and none of us will interpret the Bible accurately 100% of the time. We're still fallen creatures who still have a limited understanding of God and truth. So getting other godly perspectives is a safeguard from us going off on some heretical trail of thought. You know, if we want to develop sound biblical conviction, we need to be reading our Bibles on a regular basis. And we need to be spending time with solid Christians. And we need to be attending services as often as we can. The principle of garbage in, garbage out works in reverse. You put godly things into your life, you'll get godly things coming out of your life. I can still, I can remember when I was in college, you know, starting to come into the uh, the Anabaptist circle and I was starting to get challenged with some of these uh, uh, biblical positions like non-resistance and uh, dress and um, things like that. You know, these ver- various biblical teachings that many of the Anabaptist churches have still held on to. You know, I, I remember struggling over them and asking, you know, is this is this really what the Bible teaches? And, you know, I decided beforehand that the Bible is God's word. It is the ultimate authority, no matter what it says, even if it's not comfortable. I need to believe it and I need to follow it. And that's the attitude we need to have when we approach the scriptures. Again, if you don't see the scriptures as the ultimate authority, they will always be at odds with whatever else you're putting authority in. You know, some people claim that they are just led by the Spirit, and they just know Jesus wants to use them. But how they end up living their lives is at odds with biblical principles. When you come across people like this, I would recommend that you right away ask them, is the Bible the ultimate authority in their lives? You know, if they hedge on that, then you know right away everything they're saying, any form of spirituality, is just the cover for, for carnality. You know, if they end up saying, yes, the Bible's the ultimate authority, that, that gives you a place to start talking to them. That gives you a place to start showing them Bible verses and asking, okay, so what do you think this means? And it gives you a place to, to jump off at. You know, some of them might, somebody like that might argue that the Bible doesn't give specifics. But, you know, honestly, I think that's just a lame excuse. Of course, the Bible doesn't give specifics about every single thing. We wouldn't have enough time to read it if it gave every single aspect of our entire day-to-day life. Um, But what it does, it gives us principles that we need to read and apply. The Bible wants to instill principles and truths on our hearts so we can have that personal conviction which can carry us through all the situations in life. You know, it's also true if it was a point-by-point, we might end up uh, following the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law, like many of the Jews did. And, you know, not, again, not all personal convictions are godly. Some of them can be legalistic. People can have false impressions on what the will of God is. So I want to take a look here at an instance of a couple of brothers that um, 
actually, they, they set up a legalistic extra-biblical standard. And I'd like us to take a look at it. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy 4. I'm going to start here in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 to 3. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in later times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. In those passages there, we can see these men were forbidding others from marrying when it was lawful to do so. And they were forbidding the eating of certain meats, which was lawful and acceptable to God to eat. You know, that that embodies the definition of legalism, that trying to set up a standard that is actually higher than God's. And not only doing that, but then trying to put your righteousness in it. You know, if you can't take someone and show them a principle in the Bible as to why you believe what you believe, then I think you might have a personal preference and not a biblical conviction. You know, even if you can stretch a Bible verse to fit your thinking, you should ask yourself, what do other sound Christians think of your interpretation? Are you sure it's not some tradition of man that got instilled in you? Or maybe it's derived from some experiences you had in your background. You know, those are serious questions. I really think any truth seeker should be open to asking. The ultimate answer comes back to, is this something the Bible teaches? Now, I'd like to shift a bit here and move on to more the, the heart of my topic. You know, what do you do when your personal conviction differs from the churches, from the groups? Earlier... When I made you all turn off your cell phones, you can see in that example sort of the, the classic thinking and the thought process that some of the uh, some church leaders and churches go through when they set up standards. They oftentimes set up standards that exceed what they actually have to do in order to manage and maintain the group's uh, uh, conviction or standard. You know, since they had failed to instill conviction, every single one of their members so in order to protect them from themselves or from evil, they set up standards that may even be beyond what they think is absolutely necessary because they know some of their members are lacking a conviction in a certain area. You know, just like on the road, you set up, they set up rail guards to stop you before you get off the road. You know, the vast majority of time, standards in churches exist because personal conviction does not. In the legal system, again, many laws exist because a, a few ruin it for everybody else. And, you know, to be honest, this, this is an old debate whether or not a church needs uh, written church standards or if you need to focus on personal conviction. Um, the statement always gets brought up, well, people will always find a loophole. You'll never have an exhaustive list of rules and you'll never have their hearts. So that's why you got to focus on personal conviction. And then they say, well, the people that focus on personal conviction, they end up all liberal because everyone goes their own ways. You have no uniformity. So 
it's, it's an old debate. People have talked about it, and I'm sure I'm not going to settle it here today. You know, many of us can uh, conjure up uh, problems on both sides. Many of us can conjure up uh, stories of hypocrisy in churches that are big re- rule books. Um, you know, recently I, I heard a story of a man who he had a rubber tar- tire tractor and he put steel plates down in his barn. And what he would do is at night he would park his tractor on top of those uh, steel plates. He did that so when the deacon came around and asked him, if his tractor was on steel, he could say yes. Um, obviously, he did not have that personal conviction there. And, you know, I, when, when a standard gets set, I don't think everyone in the church is expected to have that personal conviction immediately. I mean, that's, that's just not realistic. But to go about and have deception about it, I, I think that's bad. You shouldn't do that. I mean, be honest with who you are and where you're at. In life, um, but just because you don't have that personal conviction doesn't mean you're excused from following the group's conviction. Um, but you also need to be careful to make sure you're not looking like you're bucking up against. You know, be honest with where you're at and what you think, but make sure you're not looking like you're bucking up against. And you know, the other side is, you know, if you have no expectations at all in a, in a church or standards. You know, what you do is you end up with that carnal Christianity again, because people will there will always be some element in any church that will be on the far edge. If you if you don't have like a line or anything, they're going to keep going. And that's that's just how it goes. But, you know, we haven't even answered the question yet. Does the church have a right to set standards? You know, here here at our church, we do not have a big rule book. We we don't have uh, we don't really have written standards like a lot of traditional Mennonite churches. But you know what? We we do have expectations on our members. You know, if a brother starts smoking or we catch someone going to the movies, we we all know that's not going to fly. So saying we don't have church standards would not be exactly right. We don't have written church standards. And to be honest, my personal opinion is I I still think that's the better way to go. We need to have expectations and be able to set them. But yet we also need to still be focusing on building personal conviction. We can't just wait for everyone to catch up in their convictions before we start facing the issues in life. You know, it's interesting in most uh, evangelical churches today, uh, most of them have websites, and you can go on there, and uh, they usually have a section that says, you know, what we believe. And, you know, har- hardly any of them have any sort of actual practical standards. Um, they just have this list of what we believe and what they require their members to mentally uh, recognize as truth for a doctrinal statement. You know, they have statements on the Trinity, Christ's resurrection, And they have statements on, you know, uh, what position they take on the authority of the scriptures. And, you know, having positions like that on doctrinal things, that's a that's a good thing, in my opinion. But, you know, a lot of them, that's as far as they go. And maybe you could ask the question, you know, if that's as far as they go, do they really believe it? You know, a lot of their churches would look at our churches and say that, you know, you can't set church standards. That's legalistic. That's wrong. You know, I, I think it's a little ironic 
that they oftentimes have a very good and something I could very very easily agree with like a, as far as a statement on the authority of the scriptures. But what they end up doing is they end up denying many of the Bible's teachings and many of the biblical principles that are there by how they live their lives. So does the church have the authority to set standards or expectations? Basically, is the church, the group, allowed to take a biblical principle and say, this is how it works out in practical day-to-day life and then require their members to follow what they think the Bible teaches? You know, the short answer there is yes. And what I want to do is I'm going to have us take a look here in the Bible of an actual account of church standards getting set. Um, And I think it would be good if we read this whole account. So if you could turn with me to Acts 15. I'm going to start in verse 5 in Acts 15. There rose up certain of a sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them, them being the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up. And said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice amongst us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people of his own name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of the men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doth all these things, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from the pollution of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Ursabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters to them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings 
unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. For so as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. I'm going to stop there. In this account, we can see the entire range from legalism to the setting of church rules or standards. We can see these Jews who had been Pharisees, they were raised and taught the law from the old covenant. They had all those ideas ingrained in them to the point that they were arguing with the apostles over it. So what they did was they struggled through those ideas of what's the right way to live this out. And they had lots of discussion. They had church leaders setting court, charting courses. They had a coming together and changing of hearts. You know, it says there that the, the whole church was pleased when they came to their decision. So that means even those former Pharisees gave up their firm positions and went along with the church. They allowed themselves to hear the brothers and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the most poisonous things we can see in a brother's meeting is a stubborn will. You know, when we stop trying to understand one another's point of view, we might as well not even be trying. We might, might as well not even try to have fellowship as a church because it just won't work. You know, the other thing here we can see in this passage as they work through the, this issue of circumcision is that you don't always bow down to the more conservative opinion. You don't bow down to legalism. Legalism is sin. Yet being lawless is also sin. So while the church was working through these issues, they did decide some things that need to be abstained from. They literally set church standards here. The standards they set were as follows. They were told to abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, from things uh, strangled, and from fornication. What they did was they discussed what standards needed to be set they came to an agreement, and then they did it. And at the end, the whole, joyce, the whole church rejoiced over it. When those Christians had that letter written, written, read to them, I guarantee you not all of them had that personal conviction. You know, if they all had that personal conviction, they, they wouldn't have had to have set standards about it. Um, I'm sure there were were plenty of them that thought, like Paul teaches, meat condemneth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. When a church takes a position, it would be ridiculous to expect everyone to instantly share that personal conviction. But you know, just because we don't share that conviction does not mean we are excused from following it. 
And again, like I was saying, I think it's important that we make sure we don't become deceivers and pretend like we have a conviction that we don't. We don't want to be like the man who tells his uh, deacon that his tractor's on steel. And we need to be honest and transparent as to where we're at, but yet careful that we're not uh, pushing up against or causing trouble. You know, we, we are a church. We're in this together. We're supposed to be on the same side, working toward the same goal. We need to be building each other up and not stumbling over one another. We want to be serious about the Christian life. We want to practice what we preach. And that means at times giving up our liberties and submitting to another's point of view. Or choosing to give up of ourselves so we don't become a stumbling block to a weaker brother. Because we don't have perfect or even exact same personal convictions, we need the discussions we have at our brothers' meetings. We need to be able to work through these things, and we need to be able to uh, uh, set expectations for the practical side of the Christian life. Hebrews 13.7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. The Bible doesn't teach us to defend our liberties. It teaches us to give ourselves up for others, to live in sacrifice and service for others. It calls us to obey, submit, and humble ourselves. The vast majority of the time, we need to submit to the group convictions. Now, one of the hardest things thinking through this um, topic was, you know, at what point do we decide to follow personal convictions opposed to group convictions? And the only time you should follow personal convictions instead of group convictions is when there's sin involved. And, you know, you know, if a church is showing a tolerance towards sin or if a church is calling evil good, those should really be the only times that you choose to follow personal conviction opposed to group conviction. And, you know, the difficult reality, you know, just not us, but many charity churches are facing today is that most of us chose to follow personal convictions, and leave the setting we were in. But now, since we're all together here, we have to follow group convictions. So, to be honest, the charity churches actually have to make a huge ideological change if we're going to survive as a group. Because we follow so much personal convictions, you can very clearly see all these people that can't get along, so they keep hopping around from, from church to church. And that's not right. Our church group isn't going to survive if we keep doing that. You know, it's not, it's not good for our families, it's not a good testimony, and it's a hindrance to the kingdom. You know, I can think about the, uh, the churches in Revelation. They were accused of some very serious crimes against the faith. But they weren't ter- told to quick split up. They weren't told to do that. They were told to repent. You know, I can understand the fear of submitting, you know, giving preference to group conviction. Many of us have seen the dead churches that come from just going through the motions and following some church rule book. 
I, I understand the fear of becoming, you know, a whitewashed tomb. I understand the fear of becoming a church that just washes the outside of the cup. But, you know, Jesus never said to only wash the inside of the cup. He never said ignore the outside of the cup. What he was trying to communicate is that the one comes out of the other. The church is not supposed to be just a group where we practice, practice the traditions of man without knowledge and wisdom of the biblical principles they are based on. It is our responsibility as parents to make sure our children understand why we live our lives the way we do and why we believe the things we do. And, you know, if you don't think you have a strong understanding of something in the Bible, then you should invest time in the study and asking other brothers for insight. We need to be able to point to the Bible when someone asks us why we believe what we do or live the way we do. You know, saying things like, oh, that's just how my church does it or uh, you have to do that at my church. I, I don't think that should ever be our answer. It is our responsibility to spend time to develop biblical conviction and be able to give a defense for them. I'd like to t make another little shift here. And for my last question I want to look at today, I want to look at, you know, what do you do when your personal conviction differs from another brother in the church? You know, how do we handle it when that other brother does something that I think is wrong, that I have conviction against? You know, what do you do? Do you let it go? Do you go and talk to the ministry? Or do you uh, go talk to him? Do you confront him? You know, honestly, the answer to that question is extremely situational. You know, under different circumstances, any of those options might be the right thing to do. But whichever we are led to as the right course, we need to make sure we approach any issue with a brother with gentleness. We need to approach it with the attitude we don't want to destroy them. We want to help them. Something that I think happens too often, and I, I'm, I've been guilty of it as well, that turns um, issues like that between brothers into bigger, bigger deals than they really need to be, is that um, we need to make sure that we don't get personally offended, like, like the offense that they've done, like, oh, they, they went and did this, like they've committed an offense against me. Because oftentimes it's an offense between them and God. Now, I want to take a, take a look here at another Bible passage about two brothers that actually had differing convictions. So if you turn with me to Romans 14. start in verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that thou judgest another man's servant? His own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, 
and another esteemeth the day all alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I'm going to stop there. Now, it's interesting because we, we normally think of someone who lacks or has lesser conviction as being the one who is the weaker brother. But in this passage here, it's actually the brother that has more conviction. He has conviction against eating meat. He is the one that is called the weaker brother. And, you know, I'm going to go to the extent of saying that he's toying with legalism there. Um, that's why he's called the weaker brother. If someone has a conviction and, you know, you don't want to sin against conscience there. If you have a conviction against something, by all means, don't sin against your conscience. But when you start pushing your conviction on somebody else that's not based on the Bible, that's when it becomes sin. Make sure your convictions are founded on biblical principles before you try to push it on someone else. Someone with more conviction can actually end up further from God than someone with less. And, you know, the fact is, again, we are not going to 100% be perfect in our convictions. And we are not going to see perfectly eye to eye with everyone in the church on every single subject. You know, you can try to be idealistic and say we can, but the reality is we just simply can't. I've never seen a church that has achieved that, and I don't think I ever am going to. But, you know, if a church hasn't taken a position, if our church hasn't taken a position on a topic, I really think we need to try and extend some grace to our brothers. You know, if you think there's something they could benefit from, by all means, go to talk to them. But make sure that you aren't going to them with authority that you don't have. We can't force conviction on someone to start with. You know, conviction has to be developed and adopted. It can't be forced on someone. You can only force a practice on someone, not conviction. So I want to kind of recap what we looked at today here. You know, conviction is developed by influence. And we need to make sure we are letting the right things influence us. You know, primarily the Bible and the church. We need that solid, unmovable conviction built on the authority of the scriptures that makes our decisions ahead of time. We need to be willing to humble ourselves and submit more and more to group convictions. We need to be devoting ourselves and study in the areas that we seem to be lacking biblical conviction. And we need to be aware our brothers will not see everything the same way we do. And we need to extend grace unto them, but not to the extent of tolerating sin. And we need to continue to pray that as we journey together, we will grow more and more like-minded as we head towards our ultimate goal of becoming more like Christ. And you know, ultimately, it is not about our opinion. It's about God's opinion. God bless you.